In the National Museum of Zurich, I stumbled across the ancient sculpture called Lauerkuhn and his sons. This is what the podcast episode today, To Skulk or To Skulk, or To Sculpt or To Skulk, or To Skulk and To Sculpt, I don't mind, is going to be exploring. And it's going to be a fascinating one, guys, because it has basically been this object of projection for constantly changing ideals of masculinity. And I saw this statue in an exhibition called The Exhausted Man, which compared masculinity today with ancient masculinity. And actually, this sculpture is arguably one of the most famous sculptures in the world. And I'm not just saying that for dramatic effect. It genuinely is. And it was compared to, in this exhibition, with the football player Zizi Zidane, who I know absolutely zilch about. But I'm going to interview Cosimo Amati from Italy, somewhere on a farm, for his insights into this football player. And I also get the chance to interview the Italian stallion Michelangelo from the 15th century to the studio to gain an investigation for his alleged forgery. Erotism between men certainly boosts the fighting spirit. die with glory. The statue of Lao Kun and his sons all starts with the Trojan War. Now, the Trojan War, mythologized real historical event question mark. Was that German Schliemann guy excavating it for his own gain or was those the true excavations? All questions for another day. Because I actually am interviewing Paris, who stole away Helen, which caused the Ten Years of War next week. But for now, I'm sure you've heard of the wooden horse story. I mean, it's just a, a classic, really. Basically, the Greeks couldn't get into the giant walls of Troy and were basically forced to surrender. And they'd come over there to go get Helen. And after ten years, they were going to withdraw from battle. And they left this enormous wooden horse as a tribute. It wasn't a tribute, basically. It was a trick from Odysseus, one of the leading masterminds of intelligence, and Laokun, along with Cassandra actually, were the only people who were actually saying, this is not a trophy, this is dangerous, and it was dangerous, it was filled with Greeks who were then going to attack. The goddess Athena was a patron goddess of the Athenians and a protector of the Greeks during the Trojan War, and when she saw Laokun saying this deceitful information, she sent great serpents to kill Laokun and his sons to prevent the priests from saving Troy. That Laokun to warn the city of Troy, the Trojans misinterpreted this omen of great serpents killing Laokun and assumed the horse to be a tribute from the Greeks and brought it to the city. And at night, as they were like getting really, really pissed in in Troy, Ulysses or Odysseus, Ulysses is a Latin version, Odysseus is a Greek version of his name, and all the Greek soldiers came out and killed everyone basically, and then and then they won. Okay, so this Laocoon sculpture was first documented by the writer Pliny the Elder who saw it in the imperial palace of Emperor Titus, and it was commissioned by the emperor in 1st century AD, and made by sculptures from Rhodes as a, cop- as a copy of bronze Greek original from 2nd century BC. It was then buried and lost during turbulent times when Emperor Nero, he said, I want a golden Rome, and then he 
that Rome suspiciously all went on fire and he was seen dancing on top of it, according to might be Plutarch. Then the statue was rediscovered again in a vineyard. Its story is fascinating, like it's been all across the globe uh, by Pope Julius II and um, the Pope was a really enthusiastic classicist and he sent his artist Michelangelo to determine its worth. Another major part of it is that it, one of its arms is is broken off and loads of it has been like this interpretation of what should be there instead of the arm. An extended arm out or a snake or what well, some women have put a snake there and some men have put an extended arm out there. The reason why this is so fascinating is because there are two versions of the story of Lao Kun. There is Virgil Aeneid's story, which is the one I just recounted. This is in the second book of the Aeneid, when he is a, sort of attempting to be a hero. He said, don't, do not trust the horse, Greeks bearing gifts. Enduring Lao Kun's death, which Virgil also describes really tragically, is this. At the same time, he stretched forth to tear the knots with his hands, his fillets soaked with saliva and black venom. At the same time, he lifted to heaven horrendous cries, like the bellowing when a wounded bull has fled from the altar and has shaken the ill-aimed axe from his neck. <laughs> that is vile. That's what's going on with Lauer Coons. It's obviously a very tragic story. And then, in striking difference is the version of Sophocles, who basically said that Lauacoon was a priest of Apollo, who should have been celibate, was having sex on the altar, and then killed his only two sons, and he himself had to suffer. Quite, I mean, I wouldn't personally say anyone should be strangled by snakes, but in the eyes of the gods, that is that was the appropriate punishment at the time. So in the Greek version, his punishment is righteous and in the in the Roman version it is completely unfair and unjust and he really didn't deserve that ending. But in Sophocles version the snakes were sent by Poseidon for committing impiety so hubristic actions for making sweet sweet love to his wife on the altar. Just like all mythological accounts it's entirely dependent on the narrator so if you take a story like Medusa. So Ovid, a male sources recounting of it is that she was raped by Poseidon but at the temple of Athena which meant that she committed impiety which meant she had to be punished and she needed to be slayed by men she turned everyone into stone so even though it wasn't her fault Ovid says it was her fault and now let's take a modern interpretation well actually the most modern interpretation we have is her statue of Medusa being put up in New York Times Square, which depicts her victory. For the first time, she is the one holding Perseus's head as a trophy rather than him holding her head. And this was put up during the trial of Harvey Weinstein to stop victim shame. In the eyes of the, of the gaze, this sculpture of Laocoon and his sons is no different whatsoever. I'm standing in front of this ancient sculpture and first of all, I'm mesmerized by it because He's in absolute agony and he's being throttled to death by a pair of serpents with these innocent children. And um, it's just it, not surprised that it's launched a whole history of criticism on the theory of masculinity and poignant image that there's like muscle going on everywhere and throttling and it's, it's sort of harrowing to see. So in this museum, behind him is this massive picture of this footballer called Zizi Dan. And I know zilch about this footballer. So I've asked my friend Cosmo to explain. So Zidane Zidane had uh, 
basically, well, he's a French national hero. And he'd come out of retirement to help a struggling French team qualify for the 2006 World Cup. And many, many critics actually say that it was probably his best performance or even one of the best performances of the World Cup. He took France all the way to the final where they were heavy favourites against the Italians. He put, he put the French uh, in front with a, with a penalty. And then an extra time, with it looking like it was going to penalties, there was an exchange of words between an Italian centre-back, Marco Materazzi, and Zidane Zidane, which led to Zidane headbutting Materazzi and being sent off on what would turn out to be his final ever game for, for France. And well, it's, it's a very much a hero-to-zero situation because he was, a, he was um, regarded by many as, a, as an idol. And uh, I think the head of the French uh, Football Association said, well, what do we tell our kids? We can't, we can't have them looking up to him anymore after the way he, he carried himself in that final. And in the end, ultimately, the Italians won it, mainly down to the actions of Zidane. Thank you, Cosimo, for that explanation. It's fantastic that the museum has drawn a comparison between a, a classical mythological account and also a moment on the football pitch. Ultimately, the football pitch is a fantastic window into masculinity. I mean, you have outlets of violence. It's a platform for male appreciation of courage and beauty, obviously, and like it's a rare public expression of male emotion. You have thousands and thousands of men hugging and crying over a football pitch, which you really rarely see in public as loads of men crying. So to be clear, the Swiss National Museum have taken the account of Sophocles to draw the comparison. So as I mentioned earlier, the account of Sophocles is that he was having sex with his wife on the altar of the god Apollo and enraged by the sacrilegious act, God then sent two snakes to kill Laocoon's sons and himself. Laocoon's missing arm was eventually discovered and it showed that his arm was not outstretched but bent back and twisted. And historians since before the 20th century have been looking at the statue and going, this is a, this is a male statue, why is he a victim, why is he in pain, why is he in agony, this isn't right, this isn't the correct vision of of masculinity. The museum's exhibition was saying that throughout history men have created countless heroic ideals for themselves, from autocratic creators to dictators to images of God to war heroes, victors, etc, etc. But on closer inspection the ideal often turns out to be overwhelming and they were saying that just like Zizi Zidane and for Lao Kun, it was the same and that heroism is effectively two of a big feat and it's not necessarily something that even needs to be attained. And he is one of the only sculptures which depict a man in pain rather than a valiant hero going into battle like Leonidas, for example. But he is in fact not a hero. That is effectively the only sculpture, but we do have glimpses into literature and ancient antiquity of men's emotion leaking, if you will. So in Homer's Iliad, your like reputation of glory, Cleos it's called in Greek, it, among pharaoh warriors is so intrinsic to your reputation. There are these moments when male pride and arrogance are people's biggest downfall. If we just look at the whole plot of the Iliad, Menelaus goes after his wife after his pride is wounded causes 10 years of battle 
and has notes of his group die in front of his fellow warriors just for this one woman because his pride has been destroyed because Paris has taken him. Achilles' honour is wounded by his concubine being stolen by Agamemnon, and this is detrimental for the Greeks. Achilles' military prowess and masculine reputation is destroyed, and that is seen as like the symbol of destruction for the whole of the Greeks. But then this is sort of juxtaposed with his deep attachment for his mother and Briseis, who is his lover, his concubine, whatever you want to call it. There are so many different interpretations of Briseis, because in Homer's Iliad, nine he says to Ajax that he does in fact love her he loves her just like his wife there's so much emphasis on her being his his war prize then he also clearly loves her and Homer never really he's so impartial his writing leaves the reader to make up your own decisions all the time so it's really difficult to understand if he was saying for example this is toxic masculinity which I highly doubt they'd coined that term at this point but instead, this is how a man should be. He should be loving towards his person that he's sleeping with. This is uh, the ultimate downfall of all these heroes, is that they are effectively terrified of their immortality and in need of love. Ajax, in Sophocles' interpretation, after the, after the Trojan War, kills himself because his pride is wounded as well. Agamemnon gets killed by his own wife, Clytemnestra, when he gets home with his war prize. So that's the Greek literature which displays sort of wounded masculinity. And then there's also a moment in, well, Cato's interpretation of Scipio Amelianus in 146 BC, after finally capturing Carthage, is crying. First of all, how un-Roman, but also how unmasculine this is something they only saw women doing is crying like they had you know crying is just barbaric actually they wouldn't even imagine the persians for example or the scythians would cry he was sort of contemplating the mutility of human fortune and this is what cato writes about in utter shock i think it's worth pointing out that when this statue was created this could work by an unknown artist this could well have been a commentary on how men can feel pain too and then throughout history we've had these many interpretations about it and how either he he should be a hero or he should have been vulnerable and all these things and it all basically comes down to the fact that despite this being 2500 years ago it still describes a concept that is rife in media and all conversations today whether that's toxic masculinity or fragile masculinity or doomed masculinity it's a really hot, hot topic at the moment I think at the end of the day that sort of stoic self-sufficiency of being a valiant hero is of course different and that was a different ancient concept and now it's very different but then again is it because I would my favorite social commenter on masculinity is Grayson Perry and he discusses this aspect of primal territory and interviews some men involved and boys involved in knife crime and a lot of their reasons why they're committing it is because they're patrolling the boundaries of their territory to protect their gang or their family so i guess it shows that that ancient concept of masculinity is not too far from the one it is today which is why actually that statue was so intrinsic to the exhibition comparing zizi zidane and lawakun and his sons
new tools making it a lot easier to guarantee that fine art is authentic and the increasing sharpness and availability of scientific technologies like photography at ultra high resolution is clarifying that the art isn't forgery. But there are however some people in the art world who are reluctant to embrace it. I don't have any ultra high photography but I do have my detective hat and I've got Michelangelo here in the studio to investigate his potential forgery of Lao Kun and his sons. Here he comes now. And Ciao, Bella. Ciao. Oh, that is nice to see you. Thanks for coming in today. I know yeah. you had a lot of sculptures on at this moment. I can see you're sporting the, the latest Gucci toga there and the market's hottest sandals. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Right. So I, I'm sorry if I'm going to go in a bit strong here today, but I'm, I'm just a, an absolute detective in the forgery department. I'm just here to really discuss... The 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 I'm going to discuss. What are, gonna are you nervous, darling? Don't be so nervous. <laughs> I know I'm Michelangelo, a threatening man, big titan of the uh, of the art world. But there's no need to be nervous. Much of your earliest works in sculpture is classified as forgeries. Let's take the head of a fawn, the battle relief, the Madonna of the stairs, the sleeping Cupid, the the Bacchus. The list goes on. What do you have to say about that? I buy pieces of marble for five ducats. If it isn't a good piece and the money was thrown away, then I, uh, I buy another piece for five ducats, and uh, this I'm working for my own pleasure. Quite a deliberate reluctancy to answer the question. <laughs> I would like to say that, Michelangelo, your drawings, records of banking activity, and acknowledged reputation as an avid seeker of renown and wealth do not exactly fight your corner in this particular debate about your forgery of Laocoon and his sons. There is no need for more money for me. I painted the Sistine Chapel. I need no more money. I'm one of the biggest artists and sculptors of our, of our modern times. All right, all right. Before you get your knickers in a twist there, Michael, I just want to really talk about Laokun and his sons, which is... So Sophocles from 5th century BC was the first person to discuss Laokun and his sons. Then it was discussed by Virgil, who stated that Laokun was the only man trying to tell that the wooden horse was not a gift, but in fact a ruse. And so, the Laocoon was placed at the Vatican Museum by Pope Julius II, who I'm sure you have a very close relationship with. Not long after it was discovered, I might add that it was sold to the Vatican Museum for a vast, vast sum of money. What do you have to say about that? Why don't you explain the story of how it was discovered? I tell you this story like I tell this story every time. On January 14th, 1506, something wonderful has been found on the Isquiline Hill. Upon hearing the news, the Pope immediately dispatched the architect and good friend of mine, Giuliano de Sangallo, to view it. Sangallo, he, uh, he, he bring it to me. I am his colleague. I, we identified the statue as the very one described by Pliny the Elder. It is the statue that he praises in the natural history. The Laocoon was amongst the most revered lost treasures of Rome, a work superior to all the pictures and bronzes of the world. Well, that's the thing, Michelangelo. That's what is really concerning me. I mean, let's just have a look at what Pliny the Elder wrote in his scholarship. Uh, so he so he said the reputations of some works of art have been obscured by a number of artists engaged with them on a single task because no individual monopolizes the credit. This is the case with Laocoon in the place of Titus, a work superior to any painting 
and any bronze. Laokun and his children, the wonderful clasping coils of the snakes, were carved from a single block in marble in accordance with an agreed plan by eminent craftsmen. So this is clearly a work of art that's going to produce vast amount of fame and renown. So many scholars today in the modern world believe that you read this and decided that this would be yours to take your chick for the hatching. And that's why you went with your ample time and manic working and decided to go make it yourself and then bury it in the Esquilin Hill. Uh, silly, silly, silly stories. Right, and now it has been, <laughs> and now it has been returned to the city and its artists. But let's let's not forget this: the Laokun was broken. Is that correct? Yes, of course it is broken. It is believed to have been built of the infamous golden house of Nero, for which Rome supposedly burnt, had been found underneath a vineyard. Peeking out from the now underground palace was the Laokun and his sons. The top arm was missing. Yes. But the Vatican would see to that. Is that what? I mean, the fact that the top arm was missing was only going to aid your own fabrication and forgery of this. You think, you, you think I snapped the arm off my own statue? No, oh, I think you made it without the arm so that you could bend it, quite literally, to your <laughs> own... Vaffanculo. Right, well, let's just move on and chill out a bit. So mm. it's only natural that one of the Pope's favoured artists should complete it. You, of course. But the Pope was uh, the guardian of the city and his artists were the in inheritors of the Roman tradition. It's sort of like, a, let's say, a monopolization of the elite. It was clearly rife in fifth century Italy. You wrote to your father after discovery, this discovery in inverted commas, that you purchased a farm and a barge load of marble. This is nothing but suspicious. There are countless investigations into the relationship between Renaissance and antiquity. Nowhere has the suggestion been made that the 1506 Laocon was in fact born at the moment of discovery. No, I, I think either it never existed, it's just been a figure of imagination from Pliny the Elder, or you made it yourself. And then let's take cryptic activity expressed in, his let in your letters and bank accounts. It's undeniably a cause for concern, let alone the fact that during the Augustan period there had been no shortage of Greek marble in and around Rome in the form of as I'm sure you like to call it, recyclable architectural components. Uh, look, the Pope was an enthusiastic classicist. I did my duty to the court artist to determine its worth and supervise the unearthing of the statue. Duty goes, no more, no less. All right, I'll just finish with this, Michael. I can assure you that in the market for modern and contemporary works, there is every expectation of thorough documentation to connect work directly to the artist who produced it. Uh, I will say this. Uh, forgery is the most fun an architect can have without uh, smashing up marble. <laughs> Alright, thanks for coming on, Michael. I hope you get home safely to Italy in your private jet, which I'm sure you've accumulated from your vast amounts of forgery. Erotism between men certainly boosts the fighting spirit.